beautiful and palatial UltimateSportsTalk.com radio studios. Good evening, everyone. I am Dave Mitchell. Welcome to the Ultimate Sports Talk Show, and we have got a just great, great show scheduled for you here this evening. We are going to be talking to a couple of guests here tonight and let them know just exactly what's going on. First of all, of course, uh, as you know, the Cleveland Browns have hired a new coach, and our guest tonight is going to be Mario Granada from HashtagSports.net. We're going to be talking about the Browns' new head coach, Mike Pettin, coming up in just a little bit. And also later on in the show, we're going to be switching over to baseball, where we're going to be speaking with Donnie Nepper, who's got a website out called LiftTheBan.net. We're going to be talking to Donnie about that website, which is mainly concerning the Pete Rose lifetime suspension from baseball. So we've got a lot going on in tonight's show. Of course, as I said, the Super Bowl is this weekend. And tonight, we're going to focus on the Denver Broncos playing the Seattle Seahawks in Roger Goodell's backyard of the state of New Jersey and the city of New York. The Ohio State basketball team is continuing to have its problems the Cleveland Cavaliers are certainly a mess right now. As I said, the Browns have a new football coach. Now, who in the world are they going to hire as some of their assistants? We'll get into that in a little bit. We're going to be talking with Mario Granada, and we're also going to be talking with Donnie Nepper, as I said, about the Pete Rose suspension. But first of all tonight... You know, last week as we were just about coming on the air, we didn't have time to really get into it and bring you anything about what had happened when the Browns hired Mike Pettin as their new coach. He left the Buffalo Bills and has taken the Browns coaching position, only the 15th person to ever hold that spot. But is he ready for the job? Well, it sounds like Jimmy Haslam and Joe Banner feel like he is. Banner and Haslam stepped to the podium last week, and without answering any questions, they introduced Pettin as their new head coach. Haslam said he and Banner met for a total of 12 hours over three different meetings with Pettin. Haslam said he was impressed by the toughness Pettin exhibits. Now, there were several coaches that turned down this job. One was Patriots offensive coordinator Josh McDaniels. Then Mike Lombardi called McDaniels back up. Asked him to reconsider. McDaniels turned it around again. And then Lombardi did the same thing. And McDaniels turned it down again. Cardinal defensive coordinator Todd Bowles also turned it down. Broncos offensive coordinator Ammon Gase didn't even get interviewed. He wouldn't even interview with the Browns. He pulled out of the running. Former Cardinals head coach Ken Wisenhunt took the head coaching job with the Tennessee Titans. Former Packers quarterbacks coach Ben McAdoo became the new offensive coordinator of the New York Giants, and former Titans head coach Mike Munchak took the job with the Pittsburgh Steelers as their new offensive line coach. Even Dan Quinn of the Seattle Seahawks found out later on that he was no longer in the mix for the Browns job. Haslam and Banner decided not to conduct a second interview with Quinn, who's preparing to face the Broncos in the Super Bowl this Sunday. Pettin is the seventh coach for the Browns since returning to the NFL as an expansion team in 1999, and he's taking over a team that this year finished 4-12 and on the season and has been at the bottom of the AFC North really since reemerging as the Browns. He knows this is a division with outstanding teams and history, but... The question is, can Pettin transform the Browns into a division contender? To compete in the AFC North, but you have to be willing to, to, to bloody your nose a little bit. And I think that's the mentality that, that, uh, that we're going to take here, that, that uh, this team is going to be built on toughness. Uh, and most people think of toughness in just the physical sense. I think as important or more important is, is the mental toughness, is the ability to, uh, to think through things when, when, uh, when they aren't going well. Uh, to hang tough when things go bad, uh, that, that uh, the heads don't drop and, and it's same old Browns and, and, uh, and teams talk themselves into losing. Okay, that, that to me is, is the culture that, need, that needs to be changed here. 
So again, we're going to we're going to build a team that's that's uh, not just physically tough, but but obviously mentally. Uh, we're going to set high standards for our players. That uh, they're going to be graded hard on every snap, whether it's a, whether it's a snap in practice or a snap in the game. They'll, they'll be graded and graded hard. The standards will be high, uh, and, and we're going to hold, we're going to hold those players accountable. Uh, again, it, just looking from a from a scheme standpoint, I'm, I'm not one to speak on what we're going to be running because again, that's going to come that's going to be based on an evaluation of the roster. I've always been of the mindset that uh, that you never fit your never fit your uh, your players to your system. You fit your system to your players. Holding players accountable is something that had to be music to the ears of Jimmy Haslam and Joe Banner, along with Mike Lombardi. That was one of the criticisms that they had about Rob Chudzinski when they fired him at the end of December, right after the final game of the year. So they had to be excited about Pettin coming in. And Pettin is really the only guy that wanted the job. He virtually campaigned for this job. And then up until the last day, Pettin wanted it so bad, then he turned around and told the Browns, gave them an either-or. Either you hire me or I'm going back to Buffalo and stay their defensive coordinator. So the Browns got off their high horse and decided to take the guy that they were the most impressed with. The Browns have lost 11 or more games for six straight seasons. That is almost unbelievable considering what this team has really gone through over the past several years. They've won only one playoff game. That was in 1994, since playing in the AFC Championship game in 1989. And the 2014 season will mark the 50th anniversary of the Browns' most recent NFL championship. And chances are they're not going to repeat that 50 years later. Well, let's bring in from Buffalo someone who has worked with Mike Pettin, knows Mike Pettin as the defensive coordinator of the Buffalo Bills, and also has a podcast on our station, UltimateSportsTalk.com, here during the week. We're going to bring in now from HashtagSports.net, Mario the Game Granada. Mario, thanks for joining us tonight. How are you? I'm fantastic, Dave. Thank you for having me on tonight. Oh, I'm glad you could come on. Mario, tell us about Mike Pettin and why people should be excited about him becoming the new Cleveland Browns coach. Well, first of all, I know it didn't sound like that in the clip, but not since uh, Lou Brown coached the Cleveland Indians do you have a guy that has a lot of personality coaching a Cleveland franchise. <laughs> but, um, I mean, to just to go on to Mike Pettin, is, you know, there's, there's always a big question mark that, that gets thrown out with coordinators who end up becoming the head coach. It's a different kind of atmosphere. You're not just taking care of one side of the ball. You're actually taking care of the entire team, and you set the president, the, the precedent of the team. Uh, in Buffalo, we had we had a problem for a number of years, and I could sympathize with a lot of Browns fans because we didn't have a type of personality. Uh, Pettin and his defense that he brought to Buffalo was really the only thing that Buffalo could hang their hat on. I mean, it was a very tough-nosed defense. And the thing is, with Pettin, and we all talk about his elaborate blitz schemes and how he likes to disguise everything, he loves to bring pr- pressure. In Buffalo... During the 2013 season, we probably only got a 20% glimpse of what he's capable of doing with personnel. He had a lot of young players. He had a lot of players in certain positions. His secondary was banged up for a majority of the year. Now he's going to a team where the question marks that he had in Buffalo aren't there anymore. In Buffalo, we don't don't necessarily have a, a top notch number one guy at receiver. You guys got Josh Gordon. We don't have a number one tight end. You guys got Jordan Cameron. We didn't. Have, we, we had Stephon Gilmore, but he's not really a lockdown corner that Joe Hayden is. And you got that animal on the back end, T.J. Ward. So there's a lot of great pieces in place. And if you want to see what Petten might do with the defense uh, with the Browns coming up this year, you don't have to look too too much further than when the Jets had Darrell Revis. And they can just put him on an island. They may, they may do the same thing with Hayden, and they're going to play ten on ten, and just completely just, you know, bring the pressure and bring the house. So I'm really high on what Mike Patton can do for you guys, uh, for the Cleveland Browns, and um, I think the sky's the limit with him there. I mean, because like you said, he's, he's a no nonsense guy. He loves to bring pressure, and he's going to turn that franchise around. He gave Doug Marone, the head coach of the Bills. A lot of credit. What did Doug Marone do for him in his career? 
Well, it's just like anything. If you if you if you move up in a position in any kind of job, uh, for many years, I think Patton thought that he had something to prove because everyone thought he it was all Rex Ryan, you know, in Baltimore and and New York. But Patton was in on all those meetings. He was a part of all the game plans. He probably had a few suggestions, and he wanted to step out on his own. And Marone gave him that opportunity. True, Patton had some familiarity from being in the division for a few years. He knew how to probably game plan against the Dolphins and the Patriots, and he, he had some knowledge of the Jets. But I mean, there's always that you gotta you gotta always give thanks to a guy that gives you your first shot. And he had a, he probably had something to prove this year when he was in Buffalo. You know, and to say, listen, I could be a defensive coordinator in this league. It's not all Rex Ryan. So he set out to prove people wrong, and you know, he took a defense that was. Statistically, the worst defense in Buffalo franchise history, and turned them around and ended up being second in the league in sacks. True, they had a little trouble with the run game, but like I said, he didn't have a lot of pieces in place that he wanted. I think this upcoming draft and the free agency period, he's going to add some studs to that team. They're going to fill some holes on that defense. Well, you know, the big question is just how much of an input Mario will Mike Pettin have in the draft? If you had to say right now. If Mike Pettin had some input in this draft for the Browns and he could choose one of three players, a Johnny Manziel, a Teddy Bridgewater, or a Sammy Watkins out of Clemson, what player fits his personality the best? I would say that um, he's more about protection because the way that like I said, the reason why I said there were only about 20% of what Patton wanted to call this year is because the offense for the Buffalo Bills wasn't where it should be. Um, if you want to just do a comparison of the Cleveland Browns offense and Buffalo Bills offense, he tr- true. He had the, he had the game plan week in and week out to play the opponents, you know, play the opponents offense, but he had to think too, wait, I got to keep this very low sport. So he probably tailored it around certain things that he had to do. If I had to guess where he was going to target certain players, um, you know, if, if Chavinsky was still there, I would have said that he may have given Hoyer another shot at the reins and, and, and drafted some guys around him. I think that the Browns, with their second first-round pick, will go with the quarterback. But for their first one, I could see them going after Matthews out of Texas A&M. And you put the bookends of Thomas and Matthews up there, and you, you got a pretty solid – you got a pretty solid – uh Offensive line there because you got to think too. There's a lot of wide receivers, high name and highly talented wide receivers that are coming out in free agency. And the Browns have a little bit of cap room. They may try to you know sway a couple of guys, maybe a Hakeem Nick, maybe a, a maybe a Julian Edelman. You know we don't know, but there's going to be some pieces that are going to be available for Patton in free agency to add to his team. And I think he had a lot of input as far as the Bills are concerned, with getting Kiko Alonso. And you almost want to think, too, with the Buffalo Bills last year, they drafted two safeties because they were not sure of Jerry's first. So you think he doesn't have to waste those two picks on a safety now. He could probably go out and get a couple guys, steal a couple guys later in the draft that would fit his scheme. Mm-hmm. Well, you know, a lot of national writers really think a lot about Patton. Woody Page in Colorado, Jay Glazier, uh, Mike Florio, uh, Alex Marvez, they all say great things about uh, Patton. So tell me this, how has this guy flown under the radar so well? Nobody had ever heard about him until two weeks ago. Well, the thing, you know, I, I, it, it goes back to the whole Rex Ryan thing. He was he was under Ryan, uh, both in Baltimore, and he followed Ryan to New York. He's had, you know, he's probably inoculated by, by Rex Ryan by now. So... <laughs> A lot of people are, you know, a lot of guys like that are camouflaged. I mean, you talk about the new defensive coordinator that's in Buffalo, now Jim Schwartz. He was under Jeff Fisher, and he was also under Greg Williams for a number of years. And we've seen, you know, Williams and Fisher reunite in St. Louis now. So a lot of those guys don't get the notoriety until they start getting out into some of the major uh, positions on the team, defensive coordinator, offensive coordinator. You know, some a couple of these guys are, you know, defensive back coaches or linebacker coaches. You know, Bill Parcells started as a linebacker coach. He didn't get notoriety until he was a defensive coordinator. Uh, Bill Belichick was the secondary coach in New York 
And then mm-hmm. he started to come out in the limelight when he became a defensive coordinator and then eventually a head coach. So not a lot of attention is paid to those guys who really are the driving force behind some of these teams that are under the big title guys. You know, I want to get to a couple other things before I let you go tonight. Our guest, Mario Granada of HashtagSports.net. But, Mario, tell me, Jim O'Neill has been hired away from Buffalo as the defensive coordinator for the Browns, and Chuck Dreisbach is going to be the linebacker's coach. What can you tell us about those two? Well, it was funny because initially uh, the linebacker's coach for the Buffalo Bills was fired before Patton took the job in Cleveland. So it was almost like, you know, Patton had worked with him. So he understood, you know, the linebacker coach has, a, has the idea and the philosophy that Patton wants to run. So there's not a lot of, uh, there's not a lot of teaching that'll have to go on. So basically what, what you'll probably see from the Cleveland, Cleveland as far as the defensive side of the ball will be a lot of what Patton wants to institute and he's going to run it through the defensive coordinator. And then eventually, if the defense is good enough, I mean, you may see, you know, O'Neal go somewhere else. <laughs> so he, maybe okay. he wants to step out of the spotlight. And it's all, it's a cycle that goes along all the time. So, that, yeah, I just think yeah. that it, was, it was pretty interesting to see that he gets fired as a linebacker's coach in Buffalo. And then Patton decides, you know, I'm going to make him my defensive coordinator because I know what he's about. He knows what I'm about. He knows what I want to run. And there's not going to be a lot of time wasted in schemes and planning each week. Mario, a lot has been said about how the Browns gave up on Chudzinski one year in and how this was a very toxic job for anybody to take. Outside of Cleveland, what are the national thoughts that you've heard on the Cleveland Browns and their ownership? Well, you know, I, I, you know, I got a couple of good friends up here that are they're diehard Cleveland fans. And like I said earlier, that the Buffalo, Buffalo Bills fans and Cleveland fans, we, we really – we're akin in a lot of ways because of certain things, how the national media likes to perceive the Browns. And people need to know, Cleveland Browns are the Cleveland Browns just by name right now. They're essentially an expansion team that came out in 1999. So although they may have the team, the team name of the history, they're, they're essentially still, you know, starting. And it, there's a very short leash on you know, any coach that happens to go there. I mean, I can, I can just tell from the Buffalo standpoint, we're tired of losing every, every year. Haven't been to the playoffs since 1999. We want to get back to there. So that's why you see a lot of these coaching changes happen within three years. Now the leash in Cleveland may be a little bit shorter. You know, if they give Petten time to institute what he wants to do, I get, I get in the window of maybe two to three years where not only are the Cleveland Browns being competitive in their own division, but they're going to be one of the the teams to look out for and say, hey, watch out. Look what's going on in Cleveland. I mean, these guys are going to they're going to sneak up on a lot of people this year, and, and Petten's going to be the catalyst to do that. Well, that is music to the Browns' ears, Mario. Hey, just a couple of quick questions here. I'm going to get into this a little more in the show later on, but the Hall of Fame induction uh, enrollees will be announced this Saturday. Andre Reed, the great Buffalo Bills wide receiver, is in the mix. Does he make it? You know, I would like to see Andre Reid going to the Super Bowl or going to the uh, Hall of Fame because for many years I've made the argument, I've had to defend the argument that the Bills in the early 90s were a dynasty. And people like to have different interpretations of what what dynasties have to win. Well, you won four straight AFC championships. And the triplets of the Cowboys are in with Aikman, Smith, and, and, and Urban. So Thurman and Kelly are both in. Why not put Reid in? Now, I think the, the door got open to Reed because Chris Carter got in last year and he didn't have a ring, but he has some very significant records. Now, if you want to talk about the Bills being a powerhouse in the early 90s, you can't, you can't do it without mentioning Andre Reed. I just think the longer that it goes on, you know, Tim Brown may get the nod over him this year, uh, because when you compare, you know, Reed's stats to both Tim Brown and maybe Marvin Harrison, it's tough to make the argument to put Reed in without putting those two in first. And, and in the, the past happy league that the NFL is right now, it's you know it, the more years that go on and the more you know receivers end up having numbers that end up surpassing Andre Reed, 
Um, it's going to be a lot tougher for him to get in. You know, he, he's more of a guy that's kind of like an Andre Risen. If you look both of, at, look, at, look at both of their stats, they're pretty much parallel. And Andre Risen hasn't really been given a lot of you know consideration for the Hall of Fame. No, you're at, you're absolutely right on that one. Mario, tell us uh, your website is hashtag sports.net. And, of course, you've got the uh, show that uh, that is a podcast. Tell us your Twitter handle and, and who you think actually is going to win the Super Bowl this weekend. Well, our Twitter handle, you know, we're, you know, like you said, it's hashtag sports. We, we give you what's trending now, what will be trending later. We, we build ourselves as your uh, social media sports talk radio station. If you visit our site, we have blogs up. We have helpful sports links. To any sports links that you want, uh, you can see all the cast bios. And the, the Twitter handle is at hashtag sports. We're also on Facebook, uh, YouTube, SoundCloud, and Instagram. All with the same tag. That if you type in hashtag sports to any of those places, you'll be able to find us. Um, concerning the Super Bowl, though, I, you know, I, I mean, I've been going back and forth all the past couple of weeks. Who's going to win? What's going to happen? There's all these stats that end up getting thrown out in the mix. Um, if if Beast Mode Lynch can be Beast Mode Lynch, it's going to be very tough. And, and if he can keep Peyton off the field and they can run the ball and control the clock. I give the nod to Seattle. I think the way the game is going to play out, though, is Peyton Manning. Although the the, the secondary for Seattle is very physical, they love getting in your face. Denver loves running those rub routes, those pick plays. I think that Manning is going to try to dink and dunk the ball down the field, and that's going to end up frustrating that young secondary. And then eventually, they're going to get so frustrated because the player, the, the teams that the Seattle has played. They've got guys with really good arms, and people have made comments in the media that Peyton Manning throws ducks, kind of floats in there, but he's really he's deadly accurate. So if he throws a couple of those floaters in there in front of Sherman, in front of Maxwell, maybe in front of Thomas mm-hmm. and Chancellor, you know, they're going to get a little frustrated saying, wait, the ball's getting here so slow, how am I not touching it? So that's when they're going to probably go for the home run. If I had to venture a guess, I would say that the Denver Broncos win this game in a very low scoring affair, seventeen to ten. Boy, you are calling it low scoring. Hey, uh one other quick question for you, Mario. I've got to ask you this. I saw Jim Kelly this afternoon on ESPN say he wishes one of the four Super Bowls that Buffalo played in would have been in a cold weather stadium like MetLife Stadium. He thought they could have won one or two of those Super Bowl games. Would you agree with that? <laughs> Uh, it's funny to say that because during the heyday, the Buffalo Bills, you had to go through Orchard Park to go to the Super Bowl. And it was incredibly difficult for teams because some of those times we're playing Oakland, we're playing Miami, and it was tough for them to come from where they were to come up to 20-degree weather, 10-degree weather. And I just think it's, it's funny that Jim would say, you'd have to, you'd have to know Jim and, and the, you know, how he's revered so much up here in Buffalo to know that that's just, that's just Jim, and he, you know, he's a funny guy. Maybe maybe it would have panned out that way. The Bills end up playing in Pasadena. They played in Tampa. They played in Atlanta in a dome. So if, I think if one of those games were, was outside in some inclement weather like there is in, in, and it's going to be in MetLife Stadium, I think it probably would have been pretty interesting. <laughs> hey, I'd have taken four Super Bowl losses as a fan of the Browns, What, whatever. Hey, Mario, thanks for joining us tonight. Really appreciate your opinions here and your expertise on Mike Pettin, and hopefully he can bring to the, the Browns uh, some stability in that coaching position. Mario, thanks a lot. Thank you, guys. Thank you. Our guest tonight, Mario the Game Granada from HashtagSports.net. You can catch his show uh, during the week on a podcast here at UltimateSportsTalk.com. Our thanks to him for being our guest here this evening. Moving on on tonight's show, the weather forecast for Sunday's Super Bowl in New Jersey is getting better by the day, alleviating fears that the biggest event in American professional sports could be spoiled by Mother Nature. Meteorologists are predicting the game-high temperatures will be about 44 degrees, and they could dip down to as low as 27, and they said the sky would be partly cloudy with a 20% chance of rain or snow and light winds of around 6 to 8 miles an hour. Super Bowl winning coach Brian Billick talks about this matchup and the hazards of the weather yesterday 
on the CBS Sports Morning Show, Boomer and Carton. Kind of much to do about nothing, isn't it? Because it looks like the weather's going to be good. And the league, I believe, has made it clear. They'd love for the game to actually have maybe a few flurries and just have that look. I mean, it used to be that that was the championship game. Right. You know, exactly. the pictures in Green Bay or in New York or in Baltimore or whatever. So uh, as long as it's not prohibitive for the fans to get in and out, you have to look at, the, obviously, the matchup between the receiving core in Denver and that big, talented defensive backfield in Seattle because it's a different one. You know, we talk about the West Coast offense. We talk about the Dungy or Tampa, too. Well, Pete Carroll has introduced a different style of defender, the, the playing long in the league right now. All these guys are tall. They've got the long arms. The, the key I'm looking for is Seattle. They've not seen a receiving core this broad with, you know, Demarius Thomas and Julius Thomas and Wes Welker. And Eric. They're used to overwhelming the, second, uh, the, the receiving core. Do you run the ball to set up the pass or pass to set up the run. Well, what works that day? You're talking about a Peyton Manning. If this was just great defense versus really good offense, then you'd kind of, you know, my bias would probably be given the way. We want a Super Bowl back to the defensive side. This is Peyton Manning. I mean, what on a football field has happened that Peyton Manning hasn't seen before that he can't go, oh, okay, I know what you're doing here. Yes, it is Peyton Manning, but... For the third time in the recent Super Bowl era, the NFL's best offense will be facing the league's best defense. And in the previous two instances, the top defenses won. Now, in this postseason, Manning has led the Broncos' offense to an average of 38 points a game with just under 460 total yards a contest, 340 of that coming through the air. But Seattle's defense is undoubtedly the strongest and the fastest the Broncos have seen this year. Still, the game is not going to rest just in that area. How Seattle's offense does against Denver's resurgent defense will have a lot to do with the outcome. But how will leaving the Pacific Northwest affect Seattle? Well, CBS Sports' Jason LaCanfora explains his idea on what's going to happen in this matchup Sunday. They haven't had to travel in about a month since the last time they played at New Jersey when they faced the Giants in MetLife Stadium, where they'll now be playing Denver with a Super Bowl on the line. I mean, really, what's not to like about this game? Obviously, we know what it could mean for Peyton Manning's legacy, having two titles, doing it with two different teams, um, perhaps two Super Bowl MVPs. That now starts to put a different, shed a different light on his postseason career and where he ranks up with other quarterbacks in that regard. And we already know that in the regular season, no one's done it better. You've got a redemption story and no Sean Moreno, a running back who was pretty much looked at as a spare part and some wondered whether he'd even be on that team. You've got the tight end Julius Thomas, who was a basketball player, um, kind of a, a little bit of a prospect at best, maybe more of a project. You've got Champ Bailey after an illustrious Hall of Fame career, finally in the Super Bowl. I mean, for them to get here without getting much out of Von Miller all year, who after two years uh, in the league looked like one of the greatest pass rushers we'd ever seen. Seattle, obviously, this is the culmination of, of Pete Carroll's return. They've done a tremendous job through all means of player acquisition. You've had trades for Marshawn Lynch and Chris Clemens and Percy Harvin, who could still bear fruit in this Super Bowl despite a season in which he's barely played because of his hip surgery and then the most recent concussion. Uh, you've had them fi finding steals in the draft, like Richard Sherman um, and Russell Wilson, kind of exemplifying the new-age quarterbacks, uh, these guys who can run and throw and do it all. I think Terrence Knighton remains the key to this game, the defensive tackle for the Broncos. You're going to see a Seattle team that wants to run the heck out of the football, that wants to run between the tackles, that wants to run right up the middle with Marshawn Lynch. And if Terrence Knighton can play as well as he did against the New England Patriots, then that bodes well for what is still a fairly beleaguered Denver defense. And then the pass rush of Seattle. Is this a day where you know Cliff Averill and Bennett and Bruce Irvin and Clemens and those guys can work really as a rotation, grinding it out, getting pressure on Peyton Manning, forcing him to pick his feet up, making him uncomfortable? All that will go a long way to deciding this game. Peyton Manning had an absolutely beautiful, pristine pocket against the New England Patriots who mustered no pass rush. So that's obviously a huge factor has the makings of potentially an all-time classic. I lean a little bit more to defense than offense when you get to these sorts of, of matchups, but it should be a heck of a game. I don't think anyone will be disappointed, and more than enough subplots to go around. Well, as is the usual custom, mayors from both cities have put together a little wager. Seattle Mayor, Mayor Ed Murray 
and Denver Mayor Michael Hancock settled on a friendly wager involving local food businesses and charities. If Denver wins, Murray will send the Denver Mayor some salmon, Dungeness crab, and a custom bicycle made by a local bicycle shop in Seattle. If the Seahawks walk away with the trophy, Hancock will send some of Denver's green chilies to Seattle, along with some clothing and handmade skis from a Denver company. The Denver mayor will also auction off a local item to support Lifelong AIDS Alliance, which is based in Seattle. Meanwhile, after promoting the NFL mobile app all year long, which allows those who subscribe to watch any game on their smartphone, the NFL is planning to block live streams of the game inside the stadium. The game will be streamed by NFL.com and Fox Sports, but both of those sources will be blocked on the Wi-Fi and cellular networks at MetLife Stadium in New Jersey. NFL CIO Michelle McKenna-Doyle said in a phone interview, the NFL.com and Fox Sports blocks will be implemented both for mobile apps and within web browsers. The decision stems from last year's Super Bowl when streaming was initially allowed but eventually blocked when it took up too much bandwidth, which may have been the cause of the power outage in last year's Super Bowl in New Orleans, too. Well, in another matter, just in case you were interested, police around the New York and New Jersey areas have said that prostitution arrests have increased this week. Just letting you know. So it comes down to this. Who's the winner? Who do I pick? Well, I was only 50% in the championship games. I had Denver facing San Francisco. Still, this is a matchup that makes for an interesting contrast in styles. The passing game of Denver against the running expertise of Seattle. The expert defense of Seattle against Peyton Manning. I think whomever makes the most adjustments at halftime will be the winner. And I'm not sure Pete Carroll is the man for the job. Now, I know Carroll was voted as the coach most of the players in the NFL would love to play for. That's great. He is a player's coach. But I don't think he's much of a tactician on game day. John Fox, on the other hand, has been through the wars, and I think he understands what happens in a game and how to combat things that are going on better than Carroll does. My pick is going to go to Denver, 28-17. As Manning wins his second Lombardi Trophy, and the Broncos win their third. Elsewhere in football, first-year nominees Derek Brooks, Tony Dungy, Marvin Harrison, and Walter Jones were among the 15 modern-era Pro Football Hall of Fame finalists that are up for election this Saturday. Brooks was a linebacker with Tampa Bay. Dungy coached Tampa Bay and in Indianapolis, leading the Colts to a Super Bowl title in 2007 with Peyton Manning. Harrison was a receiver for Indianapolis with Peyton Manning. And Jones was an offensive tackle with Seattle. Former New York Giants defensive end Michael Strahan also was selected as a modern era finalist, along with defensive end Charles Haley, defensive end Kevin Green, receiver Andre Reid, running back Jerome Bettis, receiver kick returner Tim Brown, safety John Lynch, guard Will Shields, cornerback Aeneas Williams, kicker Morton Anderson, and former San Francisco owner Edward DeBartlow Jr. Punter Ray Guy and defensive end Claude Humphrey were announced as senior nominees in August. And if selected, Guy would become the first punter to be inducted. Anderson would become the second pure kicker following Kansas City's Jan Stenerud. The vote will be held this Saturday, and a minimum of 80% is required to gain induction into the hall in late July. And if I were voting... My picks for this year's group would be Marvin Harrison, Walter Jones, Andre Reed, Ray Guy, and Edward DeBartlow Jr. DeBartlow Jr. is the controversial pick, just mainly because of how he left the game in 1998. He purchased the 49ers in 1977, but listen to what he did. He quickly built an atmosphere conducive to winning, and that helped by the hiring of Bill Walsh in 1980. The DeBartlow-led 49ers averaged 13 wins per year, including playoffs, from 1981 through 1998. Now, that's not including the strike short in 1982 season. During DeBartlow's tenure, the team made 16 playoff appearances, 
won 13 division titles, and played in 10 championship games. The 49ers were the first team to win five Super Bowls. But then DeBartlow was suspended from the NFL for a year and eventually ceded control of the team to his sister, Denise DeBartlow York, in 1998, after his role in a gambling fraud scandal came to light. DeBartlow was convicted of failure to report a felony when he paid what was described as $400,000 in extortion money to former Louisiana Governor Edwin Edwards in exchange for a riverboat gambling license approval. Still, in my opinion, five Super Bowls should be enough to get DeBartlow in. Even though I would give him my vote, I still don't think he's going to get in. Edward DeBartlow Jr., I would put in to the Hall of Fame, along with Andre Reed, Marvin Harrison, Walter Jones, and Ray Guy would be my pick as the first punter, pure punter, to go into the NFL's Hall of Fame. It's time now for the good, the bad, and the ugly segment for this week's Ultimate Sports Talk Show. And really, we've only got a good and a bad here this evening. And the good is really the same as the bad. And I'll explain why here in just a second. But Kane Coulter and a group of Northwestern players are beginning the process of forming a labor union to represent college athletes. Now, this could be the first step in eliminating the NCAA and its procedures against the players. The players have filed an application with the National Labor Relations Board to be certified, and if that happens, the group will be called the College Athletes Player Association, CAPA. Coulter and former US, UMass basketball player Luke Bonner created the group with support from the United Steelworkers. The goals of the players are looking for representation in the decision-making process of college athletics to improve conditions for the student-athlete. The group has advocated multi-year scholarships and has called for a guarantee of scholarships for players who can no longer compete due to injury or medical issues. People don't realize that these athletic scholarships just go one year at a time and are only guaranteed by the coaches. A scholarship can be rescinded at any time, really, for any reason. Some of the other items that the players are interested in taking care of, the prohibit of punishment of college athletes that have not committed a violation, a guarantee that college athletes are granted an athletic release from their university if they wish to transfer schools, and allowing college athletes of all sports the ability to transfer schools one time without punishment. I don't think any of that is beyond the realm of possibility. Coulter explains why he and the other Northwestern players are trying to form this labor union to represent college athletes. My goal is to make sure that all student athletes are set up for success long after their playing days are over. Unfortunately, basic, basic necessities struggle be, to be delivered to these student athletes despite the billions of dollars being generated annually. Never should a student athlete be forced to pay his or her own medical bills from their playing days. The same medical issues that professional athletes face are the same medical issues that collegiate athletes face, except we are left unprotected. But medical protection isn't the only concern. The national graduation rate for FBS football players and D1 basketball players hovers around 50%. This is a terrible trend that needs to change as this does not set these student athletes up for success as they. Now, after bringing this to the team, I'm pleased to announce that the Northwestern football players have signed cards authorizing the College Athletes Players Association to assert their rights before the National Labor Board of Regulation. The NFL has the NFLPA, the NBA has the NBAPA, and now College Athletes have the College Athletes Players Association. I'd like to say that I'm very proud of our current players and I ask once again that Northwestern officials, NTA officials, do not contact in regards to this matter, do not pressure these players, um, come to the spokesman. The bad for tonight has to do with the last thing Coulter said in that statement. He asked the NCAA or any school not to turn against any player because of this request. It's an honest request. And it's an honest request by players, not these players, 
but the players as a whole throughout the years that the schools and the NCAA have made money off of. The billions recouped from the blood, sweat, and tears of the players. The millions the coaches have made off of these players, pushing them to limits with no recourse. And the millions the schools have made off these players. And the little the players have received other than the education. Not even health insurance or a say in what the money can be used for. It should be said these players are not looking for monetary items. They don't want to be paid. What they are looking for is security, like their scholarships, being there if they sustain an injury that ends their playing days. They want to eliminate restrictions on legitimate employment and players' ability to directly benefit from commercial opportunities, such as the likeness lawsuit going on currently against the NCAA, who used recognizable characters in video games but didn't play the players that these likenesses were of, and jerseys being sold by the NCAA for the most popular players, like Johnny Manziel, but not putting Manziel's name on the back of the jersey, but putting football across the back of the jersey, like any idiot couldn't figure out who they were trying to promote. If Coulter has to stand in front of cameras and ask schools and the NCAA not to retaliate against the players for this action. There has to be a reason. There would be no other reason for the request. Coulter added after the press conference that the players don't expect a quick decision on their request and that this could go all the way to the Supreme Court. That's our good, the bad, and the ugly for tonight. I'm Dave Mitchell. Thanks for joining us tonight on the Ultimate Sports Talk Show. And, of course, if you've listened to us for any length of time, you know that Mark Donahue, my co-host on the Ohio Baseball Weekly Show, and I have really been uh, trying to promote the fact that the lifetime ban on Pete Rose maybe should be lifted, but most of all he should be allowed into the Hall of Fame. And we found a website earlier this week that's promoted by Donnie Nepper called LiftTheBan.net, which is promoting the fact that they're trying to get the suspension for Pete Rose lifted. And let's talk a little baseball here this evening on the Ultimate Sports Talk show. And let's welcome to our Ultimate Sports Talk microphones Donnie Nepper of LiftTheBan.net. Donnie, I, I know we had a little mix-up here, but thanks for joining us tonight. How are you? I, I appreciate it. No, I'm doing great, man. I, I appreciate you guys are having me on. Well, I really, really enjoy having you on. This is a cause that's near and dear to not only my heart, but several thousand, maybe hundreds of thousands, Reds fans. Tell me, Donnie, what made you put this site up? What What was your your overlying factor about this? I'll tell you, what, what, what did it for me is when I learned how, learned about all of the, the widespread effect that the band had, because I, like most people, sort of thought, well, the, the, the band kept Pete Rose out of the Hall of Fame, but it does a lot more than that, and Pete Rose cannot participate in any sanctioned event, um, including Reds Fest and Phillies Fest, anything that the Major, Major League Baseball sanctions, Pete cannot be a part of, and I thought, man, that is such a cruel consequence for this guy who, who although he broke the rule did not violate the spirit of the rule because the rule that he broke exists to stop players and managers from losing on purpose. And Pete never did that. Pete never lost anything on purpose. So to keep him away from the game that he gave so much to forever and to have not just not just not be allowed in the Hall of Fame, but not to be allowed to coach or scout or throw out the first pitch or like the whole widespread consequences of that. That's what made me sort of stand up, and, and I'm a defense attorney by trade, so I think it's sort of like that that injustice sort of spoke to something inside of me, and um, I was like, I'm, I'm going to do something about this, because I think that a, a campaign of fans, a fans' campaign to get Pete reinstated is, is the type of thing that'll work, because right now, you know, nothing's being done, you know what I mean? It's not a court case. You know, so there's no appellate court. I mean, it was a private agreement, and, you know, Pete obviously wants back into baseball. Major League Baseball, you know, although they were justified in, in what they did, 
the fact that it's gone on for this long is just ludicrous. And so, yeah, I agree with you, Donnie. Do you know, one of the things on. that you brought up here was the fact that um, he's not allowed to be anywhere near uh, a baseball field, not allowed to go into to any games or anything. And I've always said that is only applicable to Pete until baseball can make money off of Pete Rose, like the the 100-year anniversary and the all-time baseball team in San Francisco. That's the only time baseball will allow him back. Right, right. When, when, when it's convenient for Major League Baseball or where there's a big corporate sponsor that has, that puts pressure on Major League Baseball, then the ban will be modified temporarily. And, you know, it's... It, it, you know, but I take that as a positive sign because when the, the ban was initiated in 1989, and that would not have happened in, like, 92, 93, and so on. But now that Pete's in his 70s, you sort of see a loosening of the band. And I take that as a positive sign because I, what I, I want Pete to live to see the day that he sort of welcomes back and so that he can – I believe he deserves the opportunity to make amends with the game because what he did was wrong. He didn't cheat, but, I mean, what knowing, knowing now what I know about what, what took place back in 1989 – I can see that Pete Rose was dangerous for baseball in 1989, but that that's no longer the case. And if you if you hear if you listen to Pete Rose's interviews today, the modern Pete Rose interviews, the guy is such an educated fan that it blows my mind how much he knows about modern baseball and how he can break down modern players. And I just think that you know, given the era that we're in, that Major League Baseball should promote Pete as this is the guy who did it the right way. Like, you know, all the kids that are playing out there, do it the way this guy did it. Just work hard and and, and never give up and all of those things. Because, hey, listen, man, Pete Rose was not was not Willie Mays. You know, he, he wasn't blessed with these natural gifts. You know, Pete earned, not to say that Willie didn't, but Pete, Pete probably gave more to of himself or just as much as any other player did, probably more. I would agree with that. Donnie Nepper, our guest from LiftTheBand.net. Donnie, let me ask you, are, is your ultimate goal to get Pete actually reinstated or placed into the Hall of Fame? It's, it's reinstatement into baseball. And because the Hall of Fame is a two-step process. I mean, he, the Hall of Fame is a separate entity from Major League Baseball. And the Hall of Fame, shortly after the ban was, was put into place, then made its own rule that said any player who's ever received a lifetime ban will not be eligible for the Hall of Fame. And to me, um, you know, I, I don't I don't correct people regularly when, when they say it, but, you know, because they think lift the ban is all about the Hall of Fame, and it's not. Listen, everybody knows that Pete Rose deserves to be in the Hall of Fame. It's not like a, it's not like a Tiki Barber debate, you know, like, you know, does he warn it or doesn't he? Everybody knows that Pete belongs there and that the accomplishments warrant enshrinement into the Hall of Fame. But for for lift the band purposes, it's about reinstatement into baseball because I think it would actually be more meaningful on a practical level if Pete could be employed as like a talent scout for for the Reds. Or if Pete were permitted to at least come down to spring training for a couple weeks and work with the guys who are going to end up in double A. You know, work with them, they you go know, pitch some batting practice and, and things like that and talk to the youngsters about like what it takes, you know, because he was in their shoes. You know, in baseball, the great thing about baseball is that there's a certain consistency throughout over the years and that you can measure players from today from, from, from back when Pete was a rookie in 1963 because it's the same game. Um, and I think that's, to me, that would be meaningful. You know, having Pete put into the Hall of Fame, of course, that would be meaningful as well. But, you know, again, I just think that that being able to actually contribute to the game today is uh, that's that's the goal. That's the goal with the band is to to do the the injustice. Donnie Nepper of LiftTheBand.net, our guest tonight. Donnie, how do you relate what Pete Rose did to what A Rod and Rafael Palmero and Mark McGuire? did to baseball you know totally totally separate issues um 
I it, I can't take I don't take a firm position one way or the other on on the PV issues because to me it's it's a complicated thing and and I, I sort of see it from both sides. I mean, on the one hand, enhancement is is you know obviously properly characterized as cheating to a certain degree, but I'm I don't know how widespread it, it was. I don't know how widespread it still is. I don't know how much of an advantage like the modern PEDs necessarily give a players because all the power numbers have sort of come back down to normal. Um, but what Pete did was Pete broke a rule. And Pete's, Pete's actions of this of, of the gambling, and my understanding is that at, at one point Pete's gambling was something like $16,000 a week or something like that, which is fine. Pete can live his life however he wants, but you can certainly see how it would make baseball, the front office of baseball, sort of like raise an eyebrow. I'm like, hey, man, what's really going on here? But it was detrimental to himself. And the John Dowd, who, who investigated the Pete Rose case, couldn't find any evidence that, that any, not even a single decision that Pete Rose made as a manager was affected or influenced by Pete's gambling habit. And Jake Giamatti, who was the commissioner at the time, and Faye Vincent, who was also in the front office, never thought that Pete had cheated. They never thought that he had done it. I think that they were more concerned, rather than with the fact that he bet on baseball, I think they were more concerned with the company that Pete Rose was keeping. And that when Pete, when they found out that, like, there was money owed to the IRS, and that he's gambling the way that he is, and that it just seems like it's a guy whose life is kind of getting out of control and that he's around the dangerous people that surround Pete Rose and that Pete doesn't seem to have, is not exercising his discretion. And it's sort of like, like the bomb hadn't gone off yet, but like obviously when you have these types of dangerous, volatile people around baseball, it's only a matter of time. So they needed to take some sort of action to stop it from happening before it did. And you're like, who knows what, what, what it would have, you know, what actually would have, you know, what harm would have been visited upon baseball. But I don't think... Well, the reason I asked... The, Go ahead. Uh, the reason I was asking that question, Donnie, was, you know, Bud Selig really went after A-Rod to try to clean the game up from the PEDs, and that's what he has wanted his legacy to be after he retires next year. Do you think Bud Selig is, would turn around and reinstate Pete as one of the last moves that he would make as commissioner after going through all of this? You know, I, I mean, I, I mean, I have no way to know that, but you know, it seems to me that 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 could happen because presidents and governors do it routinely. You know, will give like with death, death row pardons on their final night in office because you know they are unpopular things to do. And, you know, if you do it quietly, sort of, you know, at midnight on your last night in office, then, you know, not much will be made of it. But obviously the reinstatement will, will be major news. Um, but, but perhaps Bud would do it. I mean, I know that according to Pete that it seemed like he was close to doing that in 2004, but I, I don't know exactly what what fell through. So, I, you know, I don't know. I don't know what's what's in Bud's mind. I don't know I don't know how much thought Bud is really you know, in light of everything else that's going on. Have you had any interaction with Pete Rose about your site? I did. Um actually we met him we met him a few times, but we were formally introduced to him uh before Red Fest this past December. And he was there sort of behind the scenes before the event started. And um got a chance, you know, we, you know, to shake hands and chat with him for a few minutes. And yeah, he's he's grateful. He's grateful for what we're doing. I think he likes the spirit of it, and I think that he sees that we're going about it the right way, and that we're we've got a tremendous amount of goodwill, and like people see the professionalism behind it, and and how like it's not. I mean, it, it started off with just a couple guys in in a, in a basement who sort of came, you know hatched an idea. But that, you know, the way we fall through and the way we get after it, and, you know, I think it's a great tribute to him 
And I think even if we were to fall short, and, and people always say, oh, man, like it'll never happen, it'll never happen. And although I disagree with that, I don't see any reason why it can't happen. But even if we do, isn't this an awesome tribute? And isn't it sort of like helping to adjust his legacy to some degree? That that he, he's remembered today as like, as as this sort of like the form figure of like, you know, he's, he's known for, for the gambling scandal. He rose, oh, the guy that gambled. Or I give this a lot to a ballpark. And he cheated. And that's how he's remembered. And what a crime is that? You know, like, like that he's, that he's thought of today as a cheater. It's like, no, you know, like that's not who Pete Rose is. And the thing is, man, that's the way baseball honors its, its tradition and honors its, its past heroes like Ted Williams and Joe DiMaggio, you know, and Babe Ruth and Derek and, you know, the list is, you know, for miles long. Dude, Pete is one of those guys. And he's still alive. So, uh, it's, you know, like, it, and it just, it kills me. It just kills me that, 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 that he remembered, um, falsely. And so a lot of what we're doing is, is an adjustment of the legacy. Donnie, I've got to ask you this. Tell me your favorite Pete Rose moment. Your favorite Pete Rose memory. You know what? I, I'll be honest. I'm 38. I don't have a specific memory of Pete Rose even playing. But, my favorite Pete Rose story that I've heard came from Tim Kirchin. And he tells a story of when Pete was 41 and he was his last year playing for the Phillies. And there was, they had, the Phillies, the game had gotten, it was a rainy night and they had stopped play and they were talking about, well, maybe they'll just suspend play and they'll just make it up next time they're in town or something like that. But they, they came back out and they played and that was like 1.30, quarter to two in the morning. And there's, all of like 100, 200 people left in the stands. There's nobody there. And Pete Rose came up to bat. I think he walked, then stole second, and then stole third, and then ended up scoring the winning run. <laughs> like and Tim Kirchner said, that was quintessential Pete Rose. Pete Rose, 41 years old, playing in front of nobody, and still like giving it his all. Like, you know, he, he gets on base, he works a walk. And then steals two bases and ends up scoring the and scoring the winning run. And like he, that, he wanted to go home, right? <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, right? Yep. I, I, maybe so, man. I mean, the guy just worked his butt off, man. So, um, Donnie, my favorite Pete Rose memory has absolutely nothing to do with him on the field. It was after the the strike in '81, and the All Star Game was in Cleveland. I was working at a little radio station in Ashland, Ohio. Went up to cover the All-Star game, one of the first assignments I ever had for professional sports, and Pete Rose spent 20 minutes with me in the stands at Old Municipal Stadium doing an interview, just he and I, one-on-one. And that's the greatest that's awesome. memory I've got of Pete Rose. That's awesome. That's good. That's, that's excellent. Yeah, it, it so, was. Yeah. Donnie, good luck on this website. I want to have you on Ohio Baseball Weekly here in maybe a month and a half or so. I want to give my... My cohort on that, Mark Donahue, who's a lifetime Reds fan and is really behind this whole effort also to get Pete uh, reinstated and in the Hall of Fame. I'd like to get you on that show some night for our Reds and Indians listeners to, to hear what you've got to say about your website and absolutely. Pete. Thank you. Yeah, absolutely. Pre- I'd love to. Appreciate it. Donnie Nepper, thanks right. for joining us tonight. Yeah, you have a good night. You too. Donnie Nepper, liftheband.net is the name of the website. He's trying to get Pete Rose reinstated and put into the Hall of Fame. And quite frankly, I certainly hope he gets that done because I think it's about time Pete Rose get put into the Hall of Fame and reinstated. Well, it's been quite an evening here tonight. We've talked tonight to Mario the Game Granada. Our thanks to him from hashtag sports.net about Mike Pettin, the new head coach of the Cleveland Browns. And we just hung up with Donnie Nepper of LiftTheBand.net, a website devoted to getting Pete Rose suspension lifted and put back into the Hall of Fame. Don't forget our show coming up next week. We hope to have somebody coming up on next week's show from NFLFemale.com. That's another great website, but here's another website I want you to take a look at. It's called CoverThoseBases.com. CoverThoseBases.com. The blogger on this website is a great writer. And if I wouldn't tell you, you would never know, 
that he's 12 years old. And we hope to have him on the show next week also. That's at 7 p.m. next week here at UltimateSportsTalk.com. Of course, that music tells us that it's time to get out of here. I'm going to step back and watch the Cavaliers try to win a ball game against the New York Knicks. Our thanks to Greg Mitchell for our, being our producer here tonight, to Mario Granada, also to Dan, uh, Donnie Nepper. But most of all, our thanks to you for listening here this evening. I'm Dave Mitchell. Until next week at 7 o'clock, enjoy the Super Bowl, everybody. Talk to you next week about the ball game. Have a good week.